podcast. Strap yourself in for another mm. massive feature guest episode here. Big one. With Rawdon and Tom. Really excited to have Dr. Mike Isratel on the program this week. An actual doctor, another actual doctor. doctor. We're stringing together a few doctors, Mate. Rawdon. Uh, you know, like the... Really giving our show credibility. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hewitt, Dr. Dubois, there's only so much doctoring we can do. Yes. We both have got our degrees in witch doctoring. Yes, and, yeah. and uh, polywaffle. You, yours is witch doctor, mine's polywaffle. That's yes, right. very good. Now, Isratel. It's going to be a two-part series because... It's big uh, enough to be two. I have to. Yeah, we spoke to him for quite a length of time, and he really gave some quality information. Finally, yeah. we got a, a really <laughs> digestible, understandable explanation of physiology of hypertrophy. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. actually happens to grow a muscle from the stimulus to yeah. the uh, enzymatic I machinery think he, I think to the signaling. Myosin and actin and the AMPKM Tory <laughs> things. There's yes. lots going on. He spoke about pathways and all yep. this kind of stuff. One of the interesting things with that, Rodden, which I've already applied, I've increased my training volume yes. and increased my calories to go with that. Very good, very good. But I've realized that I, I haven't really increased the calories enough. And, and one of the things In the past that, you're talking about? Yeah, generally? yeah, yeah, that Mike explained was that the this signaling process... Uh-huh which sends out the growth cycle for the yeah. muscle, really thrives in a, an environment of an high rich. nutrition, you know, like lots mm. of calories there. Yep. And maybe I've been too cautious in the past of just trying to maintain body fat. Yep. We're creating a little surplus. You're not mm. really maximizing the growth that you could get yeah. um, with, with a real big surplus. So I'm going to try, try that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there'd the, be... The, Lots of variables that may or may not influence whether you actually. Yes. Uh, I mean, and, and Mike will go into frequency and volume and MRV and all this cool stuff that yep. that all those factors, uh, you know, uh, above and beyond genetics, uh, will come into play. But uh, but yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think uh, quite a few coaches will try and do that too, where it's like I don't want to put fat on the client, fat bad. Mm. Um, I think get them down to a uh, respect. This is how I would do it, and I think you're similar. Get them down if they're you know up around that uh, you know, mid uh, between ten and twenty percent. Uh, that fifteen for a guy, you know, like to get them down to that close to that magical ten percent mark, and and that's just on the skin folds, not an absolute ten percent mm. body fat. But but uh, I find getting them down there uh, baseline, get them down a little bit, and then that's when you let the, the body fat come up a little bit. A little bit more sensitive then, rather than starting at 15 and letting it creep up to 16, 17%. Yeah. You're starting to get up where nutrient partitioning is going to be poor. So I like to get them a little leaner and then uh, embark on that uh, that deliberate okay. And I actually will tell the individual, okay, now, okay, we're cutting a bit, energy, negative energy balance, come down. Uh, more about maintaining muscle. Don't necessarily uh, try and uh, have, have the mindset of building muscle. And mm. in line with what Israel said, I mean that would make sense, you know. Yes. But, but then, as soon as we're done, nice and lean, skin folds are looking good. Okay, now see that switch, flick it. Now we're into muscle building mode, and yep. and, and I give them the nutrition, uh, uh, nutritional stimulus, the the, the positive hypercaloric state yes. to elicit that. And and you probably have seen this. Uh, you know, you go creep. Because we, yes, I use numbers, you use numbers. I am a coach that likes a lot of details, but when I throw it up uh, 10, 20%, the issue is it might be 10, 20% over their maintenance, but I don't really know what neat 
uh, level of need they're doing their mm. non-exercise activity That's sure right. it looks like 20% over but maybe uh, that 20% over is just taking them to maintenance they're That's particularly right. busy with particularly what they do you, yeah and when you factor in the extra work they're doing with hypertrophy style hypertrophy, training exactly it's going to increase, increase the energy expenditure there so on paper okay I'm going 20% over oh you know getting to that uh, third, that 30% over uh, threshold don't want to go over that it's going to be nutrient repetition poor but the reality is that that 30% that might only just be tipping them tipping over, over yeah. a baseline so you might on paper again from I'm talking about using Harris Benedict catch McArdle formula what appears to be baseline might be a far cry from baseline certainly when they increase energy expenditure with flicking that switch into hypertrophy mode so yeah it may look like you're 50 60% over on paper but the reality is and I've seen it time and time again it might be until you hit that 40 or 50 on paper uh, energy balance over maintenance theoretical maintenance you'll actually see the muscle gain go on and yes. um, and the funny thing is you, you won't really see any fat gain before that so it's like mm, wow you know you're still just chewing through these that's calories right. what the hell's going on here of course if nothing's happening nothing's happening yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing positive energy balance gain fat yeah. or, or, or muscle More negative muscle. energy balance gonna, you know you're always going to see change on usually always see there are exceptions but mm. Change in scale weight or fat go on if yeah. you're, you're at that tipping point. So. And Isretail will give some of his guidelines for scale weight and what to you know anticipate in a yes. bulk or a cut. Yep, he'll go through that. He'll go through some really specific training ins and outs in terms yeah. of programming methodology, yep. frequency per body part, mm. notepads and pens out yeah, for this. Yeah, 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 and yeah. then in part two, which you'll get next week, a little bit more into the nutrition side of things. Yeah, and he, he delves into the protein, carb, fat. And I, and I really like his carbohydrate breakdown because, you know, with a lot of our listeners, they know protein. Okay, 1.8 to 2.2, 2.2 being the upper end, 1.8 usually more than enough. Uh, per kilo total body weight, not uh, lean muscle mass. But what do you do with carbs? You know, maybe we need some guidelines for yep. are they inactive? Are they active? Is it non-training day, training day? And the cool thing about uh, what Israel Tal will do, he'll 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 list uh, again ballpark figures, but actual grams uh, per kilo mm. of body weight of mm. of carbohydrates, and then fats simply make up the rest. They're really uh, insightful way to design a nutrition plan from uh, Dr. Isertel. So he'll be coming up in just one moment to learn more about the podcast mm. and um, start sifting through some of our very detailed blog posts. Yeah. Uh, you can go to underthebarpodcast.com. You, literally, there's some great information on that website that's coming out now. So that's yep. really exciting. To learn more about Rawdon, yep. they can go to The Dubois Method on Facebook and Instagram. They can actually www.thedubuismethod.com. It's now progressed forward, Tom. It's oh, now... Yes coming soon under construction oh mythical so, so yeah. yeah I like to get a bit of mystery don't even ever put it up no just leave it coming soon yes, yes. yes. and they can go to my website tomhewitt.com.au so that's where you can find out information about Rudin and myself yep now last piece of I dotting and T crossing True Celtic the uh, lovely well, Celtic sea salt harvested off the coast of France with cinnamons. the cinnamon and the ginger yep. beautiful way to start the day Gourmet. nourish the adrenals mm, uh, mm. you know set up nutritional compliance for all of your clients well, the lemon and the in, thrown in there as well, as per the instructions, helping the detox, and uh, we all know how important detoxification is in general. Yes. So, uh, double whammy there uh, from Sabita, the True Celtic. So, we'll be handing out two packets of the True Celtic each episode to be in the draw to get in the yep. running. Go to the Under the Bar iTunes page, mm-hmm. uh, leave a review of the podcast there, take a screenshot of your review, mm. email that through to info at underthebarpodcast.com. 
and uh, you'll most Bob's likely your uncle. get yourself a, a little pack of True Celtic. Very good. Now it's time for Dr. Mike Isratel. Enjoy the interview. Under the Bar podcast with Rawdon and Tom. Mm. Uh, now, mate, we sort of oscillate. Oh, that's word of the day so far. Straight oscillate. away. Oscillate. We've got it. You know, you uh, get influenced by various people in, in the industry. Yep. As do I, and we, we follow people and we work with mm. different individuals. And certainly over the last few months, mate, uh, with the development in your programming skill set yes. and a lot of what you're doing with your guys, yep. you've been working closely with our next guest, mm. Dr. Mike Isratel. Yes. I think one of the exciting things is that he's, he's ticking all of our guest list boxes. So, uh, yep. Uh, power lifter. Uh, tick. Tick. Very good. Yeah. A bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. That's tick. a nice t- uh, tick for my side. Very mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Professor of exercise science with a PhD in sport physiology. Oh, that's a big tick. Oh, just slip one arm into the lab coat right yes, now. Yes, yes. Uh, he's the head scientist at Renaissance Periodization, creator of the Renaissance Diet. Yep. Collaborated on several publications. His most recent one is Scientific Principles of Strength Training. Yep. We've referenced him on the program uh, mm. several times over the last mm. few episodes now, Rawdon, so been building to this point to get him on and uh, he <laughs> joins us from the states welcome to the show dr mike and thank you for your time thanks so much for having me always a pleasure to be interviewed by australians <laughs> <laughs> we'll just get uh, darren in the studio yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right now uh, dr mike how did you um obviously the training background is there but what steered you down the scientific path yeah, I wanted to know with a high degree of certainty that what I was doing was the most effective way of doing it because I wanted to be as good as I could be. I never really had any dreams so much of being the best, you know, of like a fucking short Jewish dude. Um, <laughs> my, 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 my parents look like hobbits. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to be as good as I could be because I was so passionate about growing and improving and getting better. And uh, when I was wrestling, that was my thinking, and much more so when I transitioned to powerlifting and then eventually bodybuilding, and then eventually kind of back to wrestling with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm really uninterested in people's ideas about what works well that they came up with by themselves and, uh, you know, oh, you know, this guy's a pretty smart guy and he thinks he should do this, like, yeah, that's nice, you know, we're all really smart guys in the industry um, and, and trust doesn't go a long way when you really want to be successful. You know, when, you, when you're when you designing a, a rocket ship to go to Mars, you don't go on fucking trust. You go on <laughs> what is hard data say. Mm-hmm. And, and science has produced almost everything that is wonderful and beautiful about our societies. You know, when you you build an air conditioning system so you don't have to fry in fucking 40 degree heat you do it based on scientific principles i mean if you came in to you know air conditioning design facility and said yo i've got this idea and they're like okay so what's it based on you're like well it kind of contradicts the laws of physics but work with me they'd be like all right fuck out of here um so i think that you know in in any endeavor that which you want precision you want to use science as much as possible now I, i will say that coaching experience is super important because science is limited so far especially in sports science and exercise science and the data is often collected on, on untrained populations and yes. with very limited time frames and results but you so so the trick is to use as much science as is available in its proper context and then on top of that use your coaching wisdom that you've accrued and talk to very smart coaches so i think science is the surest path to the truth and it has to be the base of any approach to trying to be as good as possible but I'll, i will say this really quick I am not particularly interested in being in shape and eating sort of healthy. 
I'm interested in extremes. I'm interested in how do we engineer the most badass, dangerous fucking athletes. Yeah. That's what I want to know. Yeah. And uh, that for that, you will need precision. You will need science. You will need to think very, very hard. And hell, just do some sets of squats. That's not good enough for me. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, mediocre is not good enough. Before we get uh, right into the meat and nuts of it all, mm. uh, Mike, do you see... With the, the inherent issues with scientific research on training, due to the reasons you've just listed, do you see any way in the future that we'll actually be able to get, you know, really hard, good yeah. studies and science on, on all Black of this stuff? White. Yeah. There are a few folks doing some good research on relatively trained populations. Brad Schoenfeld and his team and various collaborators um, are always got a couple of studies in the mix where they're using relatively trained folks and sometimes those folks are very impressively trained um but you know brad can't do it himself even though he's a huge asset to the field obviously he's going to need help with a bunch of scientists around the world um so in my view i can't see this revolution coming where we're just going to be training and testing advanced bodybuilders and powerlifters like in in, in every lab around the world but i will say this some very good insights uh, and this is what I meant by saying we sport that exercise science needs to be used properly is the great thing about exercise science is it, it demonstrates basic principles really, really well. So when you when you demonstrate in a bunch of different populations that on average, if you equate volume, heavier weights lead to more hypertrophy so long as you can recover from them. That's a principle that works in every population. Yes. And, and, and then when we can look at all the pro training programs out there or we sit down to design our own program, it's basic principles like those that we can depend on science for. And we, we, can, we can write a program that sucks total dick, but at least it won't violate the basic principles, which means it's at least going to be pretty good at sucking dick. I don't know where that analogy went, but, uh, <laughs> Look, you, you know, know cupping uh, the balls, yeah, the, the it, usual. You know, each it, their own, and um, I guess you, you, you know, know we, all, everyone speaking it. in this radio show right now has a lot of experience in that <laughs> regard. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Cam especially. Nice one, Cam. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, Mike, um, now obviously you're renowned, uh, obviously having a PhD in exercise science, like you are one of the go-to guys. Um, are there still some? Thi- I'm curious because John Meadows uh, alluded to the fact that um, he he he's a nice mix of embracing science of where it is right now, but then there's some shit that he just does, uh, runs intra training carbs and uh, you know a high dose aminos when he trains, and and some things just aren't backed up by science yet. Yet you know his four or five hundred athletes that he's worked with over the last you know five ten years uh, proof enough for him to actually continue with his practice of in the trenches that uh, type experience that Tom and I will often say on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Are, are you finding that are there some things that, that just aren't really uh, in, in your world proved by uh, the research yet, but you just you just know a uh, work, you know, like you still do despite what the, you know, despite what, you know, you, you might have read a paper and you're going, well, that proves that it doesn't really work, but shit, I've had such yeah, good success, totally. I'm still going to do this. Because, before you answer, it's sort of like, um, you know, there's these, uh, you know, and I've heard you, you and I are in a similar uh, school of thought here where, yeah, cool, okay, hit training might uh, be better for fat loss, epoch afterwards, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the last 40 or 50 years, bodybuilders, the biggest dudes on the planet, have been doing steady state cardio, so maybe it's not so bad and it's not really going to uh, destroy the physique if we do a little bit of steady state cardio coming into a show, you know. Um, examples like that, the things that you still, you know, do that science hasn't actually proven or um, go against 
what science says at the moment? You know, I think that I can say a couple of things on the matter. First of all, it's important to do to di differentiate between two things. One, things that science hasn't disproven or proven yet, uh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is anyone's guess to intelligently extrapolate from current abilities and understanding current science, yeah. uh, versus things science has pretty much shown that this is the way it is and everything else in this particular topic is wrong. So yeah. a lot of, specifically John Meadows, nothing John Meadows does that I've ever seen <laughs> contradicts current literature, yeah. okay? Uh, but what he's doing there's just not any literature to support it, but mm, evidence, yeah. you know, ab absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yes, so yes. we might find out in several years that John was completely wrong and oops, no big deal. Yeah. Or we can find out that he was mostly right or completely right. So, yeah. and I think as a coach, when you have athletes and yourself, you've got to, you can't only do what the science says because then it's just such a limited set of general recommendations. Yeah. You have to be more creative. Just don't do anything science says is definitely wrong yeah. and you're in the clear so i don't think there's there's a whole lot that i disagree with about the consensus of science i mostly agree with i have to as a scientist because that's you know the reality of the matter but what i will say is there are a couple of studies every now and again just single studies which isn't good science because you have need multiple studies all pointing in, in similar directions to conclude a general trend what people do is they take a couple of single studies really out of context of what their conclusion ability to conclude is and they start to really make things uh, recommendations that that the, the authors of the study if the journal editor said hey can you make these recommendations the authors would be like well hell no because with our study doesn't conclude on that yeah. grand of a scale I'll give you two quick examples Lyle McDonald is actually very good to point this out and one of your Australian cunts and forgot fuck what his name is <laughs> Tim some Tim something or other is some uh, was, is a guy in Australia is a trainer he's engaged me in a, a very excellent conversation and on one of these Facebook groups where I you know I said something in the fact that you know epoch you know, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption can make a difference uh, in how much fat you burn. And he said, but does it make a really big difference? And after going back and forth, you know, I had to concede. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I initially didn't really understand what he was getting at. But after we kind of melded together, we realized, you know, no, Epoch doesn't really have this huge effect. Mm. And Lyle, Lyle McDonald has an excellent series of articles on this where he's like, look, you know, he takes some of the, not all of them, but he takes some of the studies on excess plus exercise oxygen consumption together. And he says, look, we're talking about like 10% mm. more calories burned from big Epoch versus small Epoch. So when these bodybuilders yeah. say maybe hit cardio is not for me, they're not missing out on a ton. Yeah. But yes. what they are gaining is something that is very poorly studied. It is very studied well in sports science, especially through coaching experience, but not very well in exercise science. When you're a bodybuilder, uh, we have to understand that you're training very close to your maximum recoverable volume. You're yeah. putting as yes. much work as yes. you can, and, and and you're facing inherent limitations that general recreational athletics people never face. I mean, yep. you know, the yep. lady down at the street who does hit cardio three times a week, she's like, yeah. you know, thirty percent of her total MRV in any one week. Like she could train double the amount and never have a problem recovering. So. When you say bodybuilders should do HIT training, what you're really saying is the following, you made the following claim, that for some small, maybe 10, maybe 15, we'll give it 15% extra calories burned, 
you are summing up massively more fatigue and forget about acute fatigue and hormonal fatigue and glycogen depletion you're talking about telling 120 kilo guys to do fucking sprints are you out of your mind their knees are gonna break the fuck off and i don't know about you guys how the fuck are you supposed to train legs when you do all your cardio with sprints it's just not gonna happen exactly Mm -hmm. man and i've done that with the with the big boys even prowler sled push which is relatively okay they're not gonna blow a kneecap out it's relatively um low impact low impact comparatively speaking to, to sprints but you know one sprint and the guy was almost had a heart attack he was on his back i mean just you know 90 90 plus kilos uh going mm-hmm. max out it's it, recipe for disaster you know mm-hmm. and and the the nervous system fatigue you know they i think that 1000 percent they're not going to back up a session later that day or the next day if they you know it gave a true hit a session true hit. On, yeah. on that day yeah Totally, totally. So, you know, I think the big, so the two points I have to say is, is first point, you have to make sure that what we're doing is not contradicting science, but if we're being creative outside of the boundaries of science, it just means we're doing stuff that science has really not much to say about, and that's totally cool. And in addition to that, uh, we have to make sure that we're interpreting science properly and not taking it outside of its bounds yep. because if we do that we can come to all sorts of weird conclusions you know conclusions drawn on untrained people way below their mrv about cardio and what's the best type yep. and then you start applying these conclusions to people that are enormous accumulate high levels of fatigue and are way close to their mrv then you, you you're literally i mean i can put this in professor terms there's a violation of external and ecological validity so if you violate external validity like if someone put on a test that I was grading, one of my students said, it's okay to directly extrapolate from studies on untrained populations to trained athletes, I would fail them. That would be yeah, an incorrect yeah. answer to a question. So in fact, even the scientists are the first to realize this is a bad idea. So you know, uh, when scientists without a lot of experience in sport performance watch what athletes do, the good scientists, what they're looking for isn't why are they doing exactly that? What they're looking for is, are they violating any basic principles of training and nutrition? And if they're not, scientists just go, well, great. I hope this other stuff that they're doing works out. And a lot of times it does, and a lot of times it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Just before we move on from that one, I think I saw you on a, a great podcast and uh, you reference the individual reference, the... Uh, the uh, was it the Norwegian um, powerlifting frequency uh, study? Frequency mm-hmm. study, and you sort of said, "Yeah, well, yeah, look, one study, hmm, you know, uh, it looks good, but I'm not going to go <laughs> change everything I'm doing based on one study." I mean, that would be a good example of what you're talking about, you know, like you bet. something's come out, looks good, but you know, a few more have to uh, before you'd actually consider a few to- more, and and the right populations as well. Yeah, you know, uh, I think I think. Uh, and enough studies have been done on frequency to demonstrate the general principle yeah. that, generally speaking, we should train muscles for bodybuilding. Specifically, we should train muscles again after they are sufficiently recovered to provide another overload. Mm. It, but, but that's the general principle. But what that means for training is very different as far as timelines for someone who weighs 50 kilos versus someone who weighs 100 versus someone who weighs 150. Mm. You know, Chad mm. Wesley Smith, a powerlifter, when he mm. squats. First of all, his quads are like, you know, like <laughs> 10 centimeters deep in thickness or something. Yeah. He's going to disrupt a lot of homeostasis. He's not going to recover nearly as fast. So if you tell him he's got to squat every day, he's probably just going to die really soon. Yeah. Um, but if someone, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you've got the average, you know, Australian, you know, like Sydney, Bondi Beach house housewife, you know, you know, rich guy bunny who weighs 55 kilos and she wants to squat every day. 
Well, like, she's not going to squat enough to disrupt much of anything. To her, squatting is easier than it is for you two to run. Yeah. You know, can you run every mm. day for jogging? Yeah, totally. So she can squat every day. So uh, that general principle that's demonstrated with frequency is, listen, you shouldn't train at artificially super high frequencies or super low frequencies because both would get you in trouble. The application is really comes down to can the, how fast can the individual recover? And it, it differs between individuals. It differs between body sizes. It differs between different muscle groups. If some muscle groups are more fast twitch, mm. like the hamstrings, they take more damage. They require more time to heal. Yeah. You can't tell me that you can do a 5 by 10 stiff like a deadlift and 5 by 15 uh, leg curl workout and recover in two days with hamstrings. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> with with the biceps, a similar workout, could you could recover from no problem in a mm. day. So there's a lot of application there. The science tells you the guiding principles. It's up to good coaching and good experience working with a lot of athletes like John Meadows has yeah. to fill in the blanks of what to actually actually do with that science yeah okay mike so why don't we just stick with the training then and before we actually get into some of the specifics of the frequency the, the, and, and training the principles that we're going to talk about yeah well, what's actually going on with the muscle in yeah. terms of the growth cycle of a muscle like in, in from a yeah. scientific now, perspective and before you answer uh, mike we've had uh, with various people on the, the <laughs> we asked the, this question and we, layman's terms i know it's complex i know it's sort of easy what we need to do disrupt homeostasis eat some food great but um, mm-hmm. what's actually? Can you put it so our listeners, what actually happens? Is what, there yeah. like is there like a basic version of what actually happens <laughs> in the muscle? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. So so the basic story is this: you train, yep. and that training in that let's say one hour session, it activates a variety of molecular machines. Some of these molecular machines, uh, uh, most of them are enzymes of some form or another. Yep. Uh, some of them are activated by the presence of certain metabolites or the presence of certain uh, concentrations of acids. Some of them are activated by stretching under tension. Some of them are activated by actually directly sensing force. So some of the the molecular machines that eventually cause muscles to grow literally detect force across the muscle. And when they detect a lot of force, they start to become active. Okay. Once those molecular machines have detected a stimulus, and they also are designed to detect the gradient of the stimulus, how much force there was, how many, uh, essentially how much work you did, mm. right? Uh, they are going to ba- basically pass on their, they're going to signal other structures that in, in, for lack of a better term, prepare the gigantic bicellular standards, the gigantic machinery required to actually build muscle. There is a delay there. So if you actually measure the growth of muscle every hour, every three hours after training, which is one of the big limitations of studies that say, okay, we gave this group whey protein, we gave this group something else, and then we measured training. We measured how much muscle has grown right after training, and we saw a benefit. The thing is, limitation with that is the signal to begin preparing for growth occurs right during the training. How far that signal goes is determined probably by some things you do within the several hours after training. So that signal can actually be turned down if you do some of the wrong stuff. Like if you do running cardio for three hours after you lift weights for your legs, that signal actually mostly turns off. But if those signals get going 
it takes several hours to several days for them to actually begin to churn up a bunch of muscle growth. So the initial signals, one of which, for example, is mTOR, okay, so those initial uh, signals and enzymes, they tell mTOR as one of the examples of the many signals, like, hey, mTOR, maybe it's time to grow some muscle. And it goes, okay, and it calculates which pathways are on and which one's not, and it goes, okay, we're going to start to grow muscle. And then it starts to talk to other machines in the cell, for example, uh, it starts to talk to the nucleus of the cell to churn out uh, more mRNA that is going to produce these muscle proteins, actin and myosin. They actually build them. Mm -hmm. The ribosomes are freed up to do the construction. And satellite cells play an as yet a little bit mysterious but increasingly more uh, clear role that satellite cells, especially seemingly in very damaging exercise, start to get recruited. And some of those signaling things say, hey, satellite cells, we got really fucked. We need your help. And the satellite cells donate nuclei to start to grow muscle even faster. That takes usually between six hours and, and 12 hours to start to peak muscle growth. So muscle growth starts to peak between 6 and 12 hours and sometimes 6 and 24 hours and then it slowly declines after that especially in large very disruptive kind of exercise sessions. So then as we're constructing all this muscle literally sometimes the immune system becomes involved when the immune system starts to have to clean up this mess. The immune system causes a big mess when it enters the muscular system so a lot of immune system cells basically unzip muscle cells and help to clear out damaged content and they help to insert new sarcomeres, basically new gigantic cross bridges of, of, of muscle construction, the actual machines that make muscle contract and have to be inserted anew. The cell has to be zipped up. That's actually one of the ways delayed onset soreness occurs is that you have nerve cells that sit next to muscle cells. The immune system comes in and rips everything apart and the contents in the muscle cells start to, ir you know, that flow out because of the open membrane start to irritate the nerve cells and that's how come you feel sore in, in part. And during this time, the muscle is not in very good position to be used. That's why you get limited range of motion. You get a, a reduction in force production capabilities. You know, it's like trying to get the workers of a skyscraper to produce as much as much uh, work as they usually do while the skyscraper is under construction on, you know, 30 of its 50 floors. Like, this is not going to happen, right? Mm. <laughs> At the very least, you can't hear as well over the huge vacuum cleaners they're running or something. So mm -hmm. during this time, it's probably a good idea not to train to allow these processes to happen. And then after about a day to three or four days later, these processes begin to die down. The immune system finishes up cleaning everything out and, and, and facilitating this growth process. All these growth processes start to die down. And then everything goes back to relatively to normal. And then it's time to hit it again. Time to go again. And that's where like frequency that. comes into play. Uh, you uh, bet. Jumping in there, uh, just before we move on from this one, I liked that uh, little description I made some notes uh, yep. that did sort of uh, in a layman's terms without getting too techy I appreciate that Mike for um, sure training with DOMS like uh, yay nay you sort of alluded to the fact that probably not a good idea there because there's a lot going on with the uh, immune system involved you know clearing out cells that type of stuff a part of the, the the process of hypertrophy good idea not to train when you have DOMS a little bit okay uh, so it depends on what population we're talking about. If you're talking about athletes that have a technique-based a technique -based sport, then they have to train their technical qualities okay. sometimes while they're sore. And that kind of technique training doesn't really risk a ton of injury, and usually it's not a big deal. So you got to train when you're sore in some situations for sure. Yep. And, in, and here's the thing on soreness. If you never experience any soreness in your program, 
you're almost certainly under training. You could do more and benefit from more. If you experience just absolutely blistering soreness all the time, like let's say if you take your quads a week to heal every time, there's some good evidence to suggest that you're probably overdoing it. Any time that you uh, create a stimulus through damage, and, and damage is almost certainly a big part of what causes hypertrophy. Um, Anytime yep. you create that stimulus, your 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 body is tasked with two things. One, recover the damaged structures, and two, adapt and make better structures, more structures, bigger yep. muscles, stronger muscles, better conducting nerves, etc. If you fuck yourself up hard enough, your body goes, holy shit, all I can do is try to recover from this. Okay. Right? Um, and, and, and you don't make gains doing that. That's, you know, acute overreaching, uh, okay. acutely doing way too much. So uh, the question of, I, I, of is it a good idea to train sore when you're a bodybuilder, because I think, you know, most of the guys who are a power lifter. Most of the folks listening to this probably have some kind of muscle, I, I assume they kind of some muscle building goals, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, predominantly. So the the first question you have to ask yourself bef when you ask that question before answering it is, why the fuck am, do I even have to consider training sore? Because if I do, I'm probably overdoing it, mm -hmm. right? So if, if you have an intelligently designed program, you probably don't run into the situation where you have to train sore much. Uh, and, okay, if you do run into that situation, I do have some answers there. First thing, if you train while sore, it shouldn't be your heaviest, most overloading kind of training for two distinct reasons. One, the obvious reason that if you overload while you have micro tears, you can get hurt. Okay, if you're sore in your quads and you start squatting really hard and heavy, you, you're going to pop something and then you're going to be like, well, that's the most sense anything's ever made. I'm a fucking idiot. Uh, and, you know, because somebody's like, hey, how did you get hurt? You're like, well, I was sore as fuck and then I squatted a PR. You're like, well, you're dumb. I'm like, well, I know. Yeah. <laughs> right? That'll be a short conversation. And for the second reason, soreness. Uh, is very clearly delays your ability, uh, or sorry, uh, it reduces your ability to present an overload. Soreness actually makes you weaker temporarily. Yeah. So why the fuck would you try to squat heavy when you can't squat as heavy as you need to to make progress? Mm. So it, 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 there is probably something you can do when you're sore. So now that you've fixed your program and you're not going to be sore all the time when you're training chronically, that every now and again you just get a little too sore and you still have to train that next coming day or whatever, yes, you can train, but it should be more in the higher rep ranges than the lower to keep the forces lower, and it should be more in isolation movements rather than compound, again, to keep the forces lower. That way, you could probably stimulate some more growth. I wouldn't get into the habit of it, but if you have to train while sore, make sure it's higher repetition, it's lower weight and it's more isolation because of the fact that you don't want to risk injury and because the high repetitions lower weight they're metabolite stimulated they're more volume stimulated pathways you don't have to put a lot of weight on the bar to get the growth through that pathway so you can still knock it out when you're sore but yeah. it, i would definitely not recommend just going benching squatting deadlifting rowing heavy when you're sore not yeah, a good yeah, idea yeah. And I guess what you're referencing there is the SRA curve of uh, of a particular workout, the stress, uh, the uh, response, stimulus, ad recovery, adaptation, adaptation, mm -hmm. yeah, and um, that's the again max recoverable volume MRV coming in when you do 
provide such a, a huge because you know some some individuals will go to the gym and absolutely annihilate themselves every session doms on top of doms and they uh, and that in itself although the stimulus okay the tick in the box with uh, busting yourself up providing disrupting homeostasis to the nth degree mm-hmm. tick but the uh, you know under recovery um, is the limiting factor and they never actually uh, get above that baseline, yeah? You bet. It's back to that idea that it's such a shock to the system that no improvements are made but because the body just tries to fix itself and goes, yeah. Jesus, I don't even have enough resources to make anything better. I'm just going to get to fix myself. And I'll tell you guys this. You know, it's a fine line to play and there may be, so Greg Knuckles has spoke to this a couple of times very intelligently as usual. Um, there may be times and places where going too far is a good idea there has been some semblance of a hint in the research that satellite cell proliferation may really occur best under extreme damage circumstances, mm. not the kind of shit you usually do. Mm. And satellite cells, they don't grow your muscle right away. If you have satellite cell infusion into normal muscle, you don't really get much more jacked. But the satellite cell is kind of like a, 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 a pay-it-forward sort of thing, where now you have an extra nucleus that can grow more muscle over the coming weeks and yeah. months yeah. until it gets all of its uh, maximum domain of muscle control, and then you need more cells to come in, more nuclei to be donated. So it seems like normal muscle growth can probably occur with average soreness but every now and again it might be a good idea and in my programming every third or fourth week before the deload this occurs you might need to really fuck shit up exceed your mrv temporarily and really give satellite cells and all of those longer term growth factors a chance to say wow shit is really fucked we need to get in here and upgrade the muscle so that it can continue to grow normally later on so i I don't want to give the impression that i'm all against going all out Mm. i'm against going all out all the time but every now and again i think especially before a deload it's a good idea to really really fuck shit up because there's a little too much good evidence and good reasoning to think that the body grows best at times under really extreme circumstances and in there i'll say that again there are too many really jacked bodybuilders that swear by the fact that if they just did okay workouts they'd never grow again that yeah. it's the crazy workouts that set themselves up for long-term gains yeah, yeah. i mean i uh i don't know if you know um, uh, a guy called andy bell but um really he works a lot under milo sachev and and you you know milos's work is is Mm. pretty much what what you just described there putting you to pretty much to death's door and then um but you know i don't think that they actually or andy actually trains like he will do a a stint a couple of weeks where it'll be just this this annihilation then he would go back to you know a decent uh you know abiding by the, the whatever philosophies he follows in regards to hypertrophy but it's not uh, to to the death every time he trains but uh and if you look at andy's physique um you know the guy's a monster he continues to grow yeah but yeah it's such a hard way to train man such a hard way to train Mike, I'm curious just to take a couple of steps back to the, uh, I guess, the molecular machinery that you were talking about and these enzymes that are caused by force and stretch and different mm. stimulus and then this this signaling. Is there anything that can that we can do, because essentially all we can do is train and eat, is there anything we can do to enhance this signaling process that sort of is this little gap in between the stimulus and then the the adaptation and the growth? 
Yeah, you bet. There's a ton of stuff. And interestingly enough, we're gonna, we've got a recovery book in the works that's going to talk a little bit about what you can do to best uh, make sure that adaptation is maximized. So I can tell awesome. you a couple of things. Um, anabolic signaling seems to be more active in the presence of a high nutrient environment, particularly if glycogen is more fully loaded than less fully loaded. Okay. So if you are in a low-carb condition and your muscles are low on glycogen, you risk the muting of some anabolic responses and you normally would train you get a certain response if you're low on glycogen even if you train just as hard your body kind of these these molecular signaling pathways kind of take stock of what they have and go well there's not a lot of shit around yeah. we're not really in a position to be building much of anything because we're kind of fucking starving <laughs> and we got to remember that muscle growth is a luxury item for the body you know yes. supporting the brain supporting the heart making sure blood's flowing that's important Muscle growth only occurs best under the best conditions, under yeah. special conditions. Those conditions include a high-calorie, high-carbohydrate environment. And, you know, it really does seem that these molecular signaling pathways are, are affected by the presence of calories and the presence of, of carbohydrate. And I think that there's something to be said for definitely for round-the-clock high intakes of food, but also for high intakes of food, perhaps in the post-workout window. Nothing crazy, but I would say that I've seen some literature on this, not a ton, but my personal hunch uh, that we'll, I think we'll later find out in the scientific literature is that if you don't eat much in the several hours after training, you probably somewhat, at least to a small extent, reduce the impact of the pathways because they, they never get started as much as they normally would. In addition to the eating environment, the best thing you can do for mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, the best thing you can do for that molecule's high activity is nothing. When you don't yeah. move, mTOR is at its highest. As soon as you start moving around, AMPK, uh, adenosine monophosphate kinase, one of the cell regulators of energy expenditure and of muscle catabolism and breakdown, actually starts to directly inhibit growth to some extent and directly inhibit mTOR's activity. So one of the worst things you can do after training, in this, especially I think in the several hours after training when these, when these signaling mechanisms are, are highest, is start to do a whole lot of activity, particularly with that muscle. So one of the worst things you can do after training legs is cardio right after legs. Mm. If you are a hybrid athlete, if your goal is to be as jacked and as endurant as possible, you got to do it that way. There's no really other choice. Uh, you know, ideally, you would do cardio later in the day, but if you have to squeeze them in together, fine. But for the dedicated bodybuilder, for someone who wants the most hypertrophy, I would say that splitting up your cardio from your weightlifting is a very good idea. If you do your cardio right before, you don't have as much energy. Your workout sucks more, it's less stimulus, less pathway activation. If you do it right after, you get a great stimulus, but then the pathway activation is dulled because you are using your muscle for something else. Um, I think the best approach to cardio and weight training, have a big ass good workout fueled by lots of food, come home, chill the fuck out, don't do a whole lot of much, eat lots of food and then later in the day if it's time to hit cardio go and do cardio three to six hours after that training has occurred and mm -hmm. you'll be giving yourself the best chance for those pathways to express themselves and last last but not least of the big factors is testosterone to cortisol ratio i think if you have a high level of stress if you're overreached if you're over dieted high levels of cortisol seem to blunt anabolic pathways and high levels of testosterone and related androgens seem to spur those pathways on more so it you know if we're talking about a natural competitor eat right sleep well don't stress out too much and you'll give yourself the best chance for muscle growth 
Israel part one um, some great stuff there I mean I think uh, you know if you are programming now more um, advanced methods for hypertrophy yeah. you absolutely have to take in those frequency per body part recommendations yep mm. Israel part two coming up next week nutrition uh, very good yep go to underthebarpodcast.com for our website uh, Rudin, the Dubois Method, Facebook, Instagram, yep. and tomhewitt.com.au. Beautiful. Thank you for your listenership, and uh, have a lovely day. Have a lovely day, and just listen to this Chariots of Fire. Oh, Take us out today, yes. Tom. Beautiful.